Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're talking climate. We're talking about looking for action when it comes to climate. And uh, there are great expectations, shall we say, for this meeting to try to set some goals and try to adhere to them over the next little while. But what are the uh, realistic expectations uh, that we may see out of this? Well, to talk about that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Elaine Emorin, who is a senior researcher with the G7 Research Group at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. Elaine, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Last best hope. Uh, Boris Johnson talked about that. Uh, the esteemed uh, uh, story David Attenborough has talked about that. Uh, I heard that last year too, though. I landed at the con- last time these group, this group got together. Do they understand the severity of this and they understand where we are and, and the spectrum here and how dire it is for us to, to come up with a plan here? I think they understand it, but I think what we're seeing is there's just such a huge uh, discrepancy between all the countries meeting this uh, this week at Glasgow. You know, you have countries like European, the European Union, Germany, the UK, who've made strong progress in terms of decarbonizing their economy. But then you have countries that are reliant on fossil fuels like India, China, Russia, that, for instance, at this past G20 summit stopped um strong commitments from passing through at the communique in terms of climate change. So you just have such differences between countries. And I think that's where the difficulty really comes in, because at the G20 and at COP, it's not about consensus. It's about unanimity. And it is really difficult to find unanimity between all of these countries. Well, and to use an old phrase, and I hate to drag this one up, but but, but it seems applicable here. They're certainly talking the talk. Uh, but your point's well taken. Are they walking the walk? And the G20, I understand it's a separate conference, but I mean, a lot of those people that were in Rome are now in Glasgow. And uh, I mean, there are some people that considered the communicate that they issued out of Rome uh, obfuscation, really. I mean, they, they, they said they want firm action. They're seeking carbon neutrality uh, by or around the middle of the century. Uh, that's really nailing it down. Uh, and they agreed to end public financing for coal-powered fire generation. Great move, but that's abroad. They had set no target for phasing out coal domestically. Uh, which uh, some observers are saying was a clear uh, nod to China and to India, as you just mentioned. Uh, it, it seems as if they're trying to water down expectations as opposed to solidify them. Yeah, the G20 was really disappointing because a lot of people saw it as a kind of a make or break um, moment in terms of climate change and really thought that the G20 would be able to provide momentum going into COP26 because the G20 represent about 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So they're really the group of countries that are crucial to halting climate change. And at this weekend, you know, the final communique was quite disappointing. As you said, the language was quite watered down. There weren't firm timelines in terms of um, achieving net zero. Um, you know, there are some countries that were really hoping to get net zero by 2050 spelled out in the communique. That was watered down to near mid-century because, again, you have China and Russia that were really not um, uh, wanting to commit to that set 2050. So the communique was quite disappointing. I think the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres put it quite well in a tweet going from Rome to Glasgow. He said, I leave Rome with my hopes unfulfilled, but at least they are not buried. I think that's quite a good way to put it. So now all eyes are on COP26 to see if they can kind of salvage the situation and make real progress that is so needed. A lot of observers are saying, look, nothing substantive is going to get done here until you bring China and Russia into the tent here uh, with their commitments. Is, is that an accurate statement? 
That is very accurate. China represents 28% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So um, they're a really crucial actor. Russia is also a really big country when it comes to fossil fuels. And those were the, the two countries and India that were really limiting the ambitious action that other members of the G20 wanted to take this weekend, including Canada. You know, the prime minister said outright that he was disappointed that other countries weren't as ambitious as he would have wanted them to. So it'll be really crucial to get those countries to sit down at the table in Glasgow and up the ante. There might be some hope, you know, oftentimes countries like to participate in a bit of theater. So maybe these countries are waiting for COP26 to make a big, ambitious announcement. So I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but really looking to COP26 to kind of salvage the situation because the Rome summit was quite disappointing in terms of climate change. I, and it'd be wonderful. I mean, in a perfect world, you'd have the, the Chinese thing. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna. Here's this debt date. We're gonna, we're gonna wean ourselves off coal. But I mean, they are so dependent in their economy on on coal in China. I, I, it, You'd like to think that they understand the severity and the gravity of the situation, but on the other hand, uh, they're in an economic boom right now, and I don't know that they want to turn the tap off. There is one kind of positive sign. So China at the G20 did agree to end coal financing by the end of the year, and China is the biggest source of coal financing for um, developing countries, so that is a good sign. But you are right, and that's where the conversation gets a little bit difficult because you have developing countries like China or um, India who tell developed countries like the Europeans, well, you use fossil fuels to develop and to advance your economies. So why can't we? And that gets into quite a difficult conversation. And there's politics involved, as, as we all know. Uh, they don't seem to want to talk about it up front, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a strong undercurrent here. Uh, you mentioned Russia, and of course, I know that Putin is upset about the fact that he still is not allowed into the G7, uh, and he may be pouting about that and say, why should I cooperate with you? Uh, but even within you know, our, our, our allies here, uh, I know Joe Biden's been a strong proponent of this, and of course, he's at the conference, uh, and, and the U.S. is the second worst polluter right behind China. But he's getting a lot of flack from his own Democratic Party about this, that they're going too far too soon in situations like that. So there's there's a political end to this right now, and he's paying a price for that if you look at the popular opinion polls. Uh, so and, and it's it's one of these things. And of course, we could mention the same thing, I guess, in certain parts of Canada here where there's some resistance to some of the goals that our federal government is saying. So that political element of is, although not stated, is a, is a cloud that's hanging over this conference. Yes, that's very true. And I think Joe Biden really wanted to come to the G20 and then COP with a strong um, bill in Congress, with strong climate change provisions. But we've seen that his bill has been held up um, by infighting both within the Democratic Party, but also Republicans don't want to go as far as the bill says um, with different provisions. But one of them is climate change. So I think that was a bit of an embarrassment for President Biden coming to these summits. You know, he has said the United States is back. We believe in climate change. We want to take strong action. But his government has been unable to do that so far within the United States. And that sort of does weaken his position going into these negotiations. Negotiations, especially if he's then trying to convince other, you know, climate change laggards like India or China to, to step up if he himself can't do it within the United States. I don't want to get too technical here, but I mean, this is an important point because they talked about this at the G20 meeting, and I know it's going to be uh, one of the focal points of, of the conference in Glasgow as well. Uh, and that's the, uh, the, the goal right now. 
of, uh, of keeping global temperatures from rising by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, this century uh, compared to, to some of the other uh, times in our history and pre-industrial time for that matter too. How important is this? And maybe explain to our listeners why it's important to achieve that goal. I think this is a really crucial goal. It was already articulated in the Paris Agreement in 2015. It was, again, articulated in the, the G20 communique. So at this point, it really seems to be sort of the minimum commitment that can be included in these international negotiations. But a recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change stressed that this is really the, the sort of minimum that needs to be taken in order to limit the harms done by climate change. And, you know, we've already seen around the world um, the damages that climate change can, re- uh, can wreak, whether it's the fires out west. Um, we've seen um, uh, uh, fires in Europe as well. Like, climate change is not going to come in a few years. It's already here. And limiting global uh, warming to 1.5 degrees is sort of the minimum to avoid any worse damages to the environment, which can really hamper our quality of lives. But what's crucial here is not just our lives, but the lives of our children and our, and our grandchildren. You know, if we don't do this, then, then we don't really have a planet left for future generations. And I think that's why you see youth really driving forward this, this climate change movement here in Canada, but around the world as well, because they're the ones that are the most concerned. And I think that there's just so much pressure from youth in Canada and around the world for leaders to act at this COP26 that that's why I'm cautiously optimistic. I really think there's no way that leaders like the Prime Minister can then come home without having clear action to show for their trips abroad. If that were to happen, and I, I hope we don't go down that road, but as you mentioned, they, we they underwhelmed us, I guess, at the G20 with uh, with their communique. Uh, what's going to come out of COP26 here? I, and notwithstanding what they may or may not make commitments to, how important is it for, in our case, uh, our Prime Minister or President Biden south of the border or Boris Johnson or everyone else there to say, well, you know, we're going to exceed those expectations. I mean, to, to move the ball forward. And if China and Russia don't come on side, so be it. But that there are some people that say, well, then what? throw up your hands and say, well, what's the use then? But how important is this for countries like Canada and the United States to go forward no matter what, simply because of what, what they can do? I think it's really crucial. Of course, having China at the table is important. They do account for 28% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But even if China doesn't show up to the table, then it's up to other countries to really demonstrate leadership. And I think in the case of the prime minister, he recognizes that climate change is one of the number one issues top of mind for Canadians. We certainly saw that in the last election. And the prime minister is also in legacy building mode. He knows that given how existential climate change is, climate change will feature really importantly in his legacy. So I think he wants to make sure that he takes strong climate action um, and can show something for it. And for Canada, one of the areas that's really important to address is fossil fuels. You know, in 2009, that was the first time that the G20 committed to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. But in 2019, the G20 collectively made over $79 billion in terms of fossil fuel subsidies. And this is an area where our research has shown that Canada very much is a laggard. So I think the prime minister knows he needs to make a strong commitment, but also comply with that commitment. And, um, you know, this is an area where we see there's a lot of um, 
failure to follow through. Leaders come to these summits, whether it's the G20 or the COPs, um, release a communique, make a commitment. But then what really matters is whether or not they comply with it. And unfortunately, leaders haven't been that successful in terms of complying with their climate change commitments. So I think that's really key. You know, words are great, but actions speak louder than words. There's another element here that's been an ongoing problem, and many of the issues, by the way, that are going to be discussed at COP26, of course, Elaine, are, are things that have been on uh, past agenda. And uh, one of them, of course, is is the, the plight of poorer nations. Uh, and, and the argument that many of them put forth was, look, it's well good for the United States or the UK to say, here, here are the targets, here's what we should be doing. Uh, but they've got their economies already rolling. These are emerging economies, and they're saying, we have to go through this. We need to build our economy. We're going to need fossil fuels for at least a while and things of this nature. How important is it for those countries that have moved forward and some of the big players that we've just talked about here to reach back and, and offer assistance and advice uh, to some of these poor nations to help them get to, to the levels that they need to be at? Climate financing for developing countries, you're exactly right, is really crucial to halting global warming. Um, in 2009, wealthy countries pledged to uh, donate $100 billion by 2020 to developing countries to help with their transition. But again, actions speak louder than words, and there's only been about 70 billion that's been donated, so we're about 30 billion off that goal. So this weekend at the G20, the leaders extended that timeline to 2025, giving them a bit more time. And this is where uh, what's crucial is not making that commitment, but complying with it. And that will be really key because, like you say, developing countries will say, well, you know, you advanced economies, developed countries, you use fossil fuels to advance your economies. So why shouldn't we? And at the same time, developing countries are bearing the brunt of climate change. So it's really important for developed countries to stand up and actually um, comply with their commitment and provide that climate financing that is so needed and so crucial for developing countries to work to halt climate change, but also protect their own countries from climate change. What can we expect in, in the way of action here? As, as you say, communiques are one thing, uh, words are action. Does there need to be a bold statement here or a bold action uh, from the leaders at this conference to, to show the world that they're serious and that this is the, this is the tipping point? Yeah, I think this really is a, a make-or-break moment, as many environmental activists have said. So I think unless the leaders come out with a strong statement and bold action, then it will be seen as, as a failure. And like we've talked about, climate change is the number one priority for so many citizens around the world. And if leaders come back with no real action or, or, or um uh, a commitment taken at, at Glasgow, I think they won't find a very warm welcome back in their home countries. But action is really the most important thing. So it, it remains to be seen whether if they do make commitments at Glasgow, if uh, countries will um, actually implement those commitments. And that's why it's so important to have NGOs, environmental groups, research um, uh, groups like ours monitoring those commitments and really holding governments and countries to account because like we said you know words are great but actions speak louder than words what about the political commitment we talked about that earlier in our conversation and as you mentioned there's already uh, a lot of pushback now in the united states for president biden's plan here even from democrats because they're concerned the midterm elections are not that far away and uh, there is going to be some economic impact we get that and we're hearing it on this side of the border too elaine 
uh, gas prices have gone up in the last little while. That's not solely, by the way, because of carbon taxing. I mean, I know the, the critics would love you to have, believe that, but I mean, it's, it's the world price of oil, uh, which is having an impact on that. But there is some, some pushback. We expect that from Alberta governments and Saskatchewan governments. But do you get the mood that here in this country that there is a desire uh, for the majority of the population to look for a bold statement and do something about this? I mean, I think we really saw that in the, in the last election. Climate change became one of the key issues, and we saw that uh, uh, parties that had strong um, commitments and platforms when it came to climate change were the parties that, that performed the best. Um, and I think the, the former Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Catherine McKenna, put it really well. It's not a decision between the economy and climate change. You can have strong economic growth and strong action on climate change. When it comes to industries out west, there's where you'll need government support to help make that transition as least painful for folks as possible. And that's where another, actually one of the great successes of, of this past G20 summit comes into play. The G20 were able to agree to implement a global uh, 15% minimum tax on multinationals. And that will lead to increasing government revenues annually and globally by about $150 billion. Now, we've talked a lot about the failures of the G20 during this conversation, but this is a big, big success. It's a big deal. And it will go a long way to helping fund some of the government COVID-19 recovery packages that have a big green economic transition element to them and there's been a lot of concern about you know deficits and whether countries are spending too much money on that but this global tax reform will really help countries fund these recovery packages and help fund the green transition to help make it as less painful as possible on folks working in those fossil fuel reliant uh, industries. Well, we'll be watching with great interest on this, obviously, as uh, so many po- those leaders have told us. This is our last best hope, and we were looking for some positive impact and change and commitment uh, at this conference in Glasgow. Uh, Elaine, thank you so much for the time and for your expertise on this. Really pr- appreciate your perspective. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we can talk about uh, some happy endings as this uh, moves forward. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Take care. Elaine Emerin, of course, Senior Researcher uh, for G7 Research at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. And updates on this, of course, through the next couple of days from Glasgow. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.